that you are faithful. There are many times we're faithless, many times our faith wavers or wobbles or even falls or just fails, but you remain faithful. Your word is the truth today, yesterday, and it will be forever. And you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we come to lift our eyes off of ourselves this morning and put our eyes on you and on who you are, on what you've done, and on what you desire to do. To put our eyes on what you've done for us and what you desire to do in us and what you want to do through us. And we thank you, Father, that you've given us your word, that this word is a living word, it is alive, it is active, it speaks to us every day, and it may speak to us different things, different days, because you speak to us for where we are, but not just where we are, you also speak to us to call us to where you want us to go. And we've come together today as a congregation, as the body of Christ here at Faith Christian Center. And just as the Spirit of God did in the book of Revelation to those seven churches, we believe that the Spirit of God is speaking to Faith Christian Center. And so, Lord, today may we have ears to hear what he's saying. May we have spiritual eyes to see what he wants us to see. And may our hearts be tender, soft, and open to grasp what he wants us to understand, that we may be changed, that we may do what you've called us to do, And we thank you for that grace in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. While we're turning there, I just want to mention something to you. There are different purposes for teaching. There are different purchases for what happens in the pulpit on a Sunday morning. And some of them are for teaching and instruction. Teaching is important because teaching is what gives us understanding Understanding is what allows us to go home and apply it in our life and and to discern the Word of God for ourselves. Because the Bible tells us we need to learn to discern the Word of God. We live in a time when there are a lot of strange teachings out there. And the Bible says that in the latter days, in the last days, and I believe we are in the last days, that many are going to be deceived. That means they're going to hear things and believe their truth and not recognize that they're not truth. And the reason is because they didn't have an understanding of the truth. Something looked good, smelled good, and tasted good, and therefore they assumed it was the truth. But it takes understanding of the doctrine, of correct doctrine, and of the Word of God to be able to discern truth from error. So teaching is a very important understand, thing for understanding. Preaching is important because what preaching does is it motivates us to go do what we're supposed to do. So when you leave here with teaching, you know you understand what you're supposed to do, but you're still able to go home and just do what you did before. Preaching gets you all stirred up to go act, but then you've got to have some understanding of what it is you're supposed to do. So it takes a blend of the two. But there's also a type of ministering from the pulpit which is prophetic. That doesn't mean it has to be a prophet. Prophetic means it's a calling. It's God calling us to do something, calling us together, calling us. And the image that I have in my, in my mind of this, which is, is that of a shepherd among the sheep. And I've never, you know, I've seen them, I've, seen, I've never seen shepherds with sheep. I've seen flocks of sheep, you know, in a, in a farmyard somewhere. But I know people that have been in the Middle East and they've seen them and literally watched how they'll, they'll blend their herds together and the different shepherds. I remember Mary Ann Brown one time sharing the story with us about she caught off a bus with her son Buster. In, 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 in fact, the bus was stopped because these sheep were all crossing the road. 
and she could see the different shepherds, and the, and the guide says, watch this. Once they got across the road, the shepherds each began to make a different noise. One was clicking, another might clap his hands, a different noise, and when they did that, the sheep's heads went up. And wherever that shepherd went, that's where their sheep followed them. That's why John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and the voice of another they won't follow. And so the, there's, a, there's a voice with which the Spirit of God will speak to a flock, to a sheep, in order to get them to come together to go in a direction. And that is what I believe is prophetic. There's different purposes for it, but that's a prophetic word because it's not just giving us understanding. It's not just motivating us. It's calling us together to go somewhere. And I share that because that's what I believe God's doing now. And so when we go back over John chapter 4 again for the umpteenth time, and some of you may be tempted to say, well, we've been over this before, yes. But what happens is as we go over it and over and over again, it's, it's beginning to dawn on people, oh, that's what he means. That's where we're going. The, the, the essence of this could have been taught in one session. That's what I intended to do. But as I got into it, I felt the Spirit of God showing me that there was a deeper truth in here, there was a direction for this church, a significant direction for this church, and that's why we've gone back over it and back over it and back over the story week after week. Well, we're going to move ahead a little bit today, and so we're going to pick up in John chapter 4, because the last few weeks I've just summarized it for you, but we're going to pick up, our, you, know, what, you know the story, Jesus has met the woman at the well, and, and, and what his goal here is to lift her eyes off of the fact that she's meeting a Jewish male, and, and with the understanding that, that she gets a revelation of who it is she's meeting and what he can give to her, and he tells her what he's offering her, which is living water. And we've looked at it from the point of view as when we come together as a congregation, that this is the opportunity we also have, that God wants to meet with us here. And just as she didn't realize who she was, the opportunity she had when she came to that well, so much of the time we don't realize the full opportunity that we have when we come to just to go to church or just to praise, praise and worship or just to hear another sermon. Because it's not a sermon, it's not a, it's not a song, it's God meeting with us, God wants to meet with us because God wants to impart things into your life. He can change things in your life you struggle with your entire life in seconds an encounter with God. Seconds can totally turn you around inside. Seconds can give you an, underst- an idea to, to, for, a, for a business or an idea for how to solve something. In seconds with an encounter with God that can entirely change the future, future and the future of your family. And that's the opportunity we have every time we come together. I said, well, you can do it in your basement. You can do it in your car. But when we come together collectively, when we come together collectively as his body here, there's a greater focus, there's a greater power, there's a synergy, there's a spiritual energy that we draw off one another and that does something to bring God's presence here collectively, to us collectively. And that's what this is really about, is preparing. So we've talked a lot about preparing for that. And we saw that that's what Jesus was doing with the woman at the well when he starts dealing with her about her, her life and her past and how she's living her life. And we're going to move on. There's a lot more that we could have gone through. I was looking this morning at some old notes I had, and there are a series of revivals I wanted to show you about where, where, where they found the Word of God, and when they found the Word of God, it began to pierce their hearts, and they began to change what they were doing, and a revival broke out. But I, I really have a sense we need to move on. 
And we're going to pick up here in the story because Jesus has talked to her. And verse 19, she says, you know, I perceive you're a prophet because he said, you know, go call your husband. And she says, well, I don't have one. He said, that's right, you've had five. And you're now, the guy you're living with now, you're living in sin. And she said, I see you're a prophet. And now she talks about worship. Our fathers, verse 20, worshiped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. So it's not where you're going to worship that sets it. You worship what you don't know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And this verse 23 is where we wanted to get to. For the Spirit, for the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers, which is what we're desiring to be, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We'll talk a little bit about that. We'll talk about that a little later. This is what I want to get to. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. We've been talking about what Jesus was doing with this woman was wetting her appetite. I mean, it's dry place. It's probably the middle, early in the day or maybe the middle of the day. And she's coming out and she's coming for water to quench her thirst, not just now, but to take back into the village for, for, for the rest of her day or however long that container of water would last. And Jesus uses that example, uses that physical need to touch a spiritual need in her. He says, I have something to give you that if you would ask me, it would satisfy every inner need, every inner thirst. And she was obviously very thirsty because her life was a mess. The fact that she'd had five husbands means she was longing for something and nothing had worked. And now she was living with a guy. She wasn't married to him. She'd given up on marriage. But she's still searching for something to satisfy that inner need. And Jesus said, I have it for you. And she says, well, sir, give it to me. So she's responding. She's saying, I want a drink of what that is. I can taste it. I can smell it. God's given you senses around, the, around your mouth, nose, and taste buds so that you can begin to, you know, I come home some nights, you know, and I walk in the door and, what's she been cooking? And the moment I begin to smell it, my mouth begins to water. I'm, my body's getting ready to eat what she spent the time preparing. And God's been preparing something for us. He's preparing a wonderful feast that will satisfy every need in your life and through you touch the lives of other people. And he's, he's, there's an aroma he wants to bring through you. Oh, there's something good going to happen. There's something good brewing. And we begin to get our juices going to begin to expect that. And that can happen in the spirit as well as it can in the physical body. And so that's what he's been doing. So what we've been talking about is our desire. God's stimulating our desire for this. But what we're going to begin to look at now is we see from this verse, God has a desire. For notice what he says here in verse 23. For the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. What's He seeking? True worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. You know, so much of the time we think of our relationship with God, both individually and as a congregation, from our side. What are we getting? What is God offering to us? Did I get everything God had for me? Well, I'm having trouble receiving from God. My prayers don't seem to be answered. I have needs. God, would you meet my needs? We come for prayer and say, God, we have all these needs. And God does desire to meet our needs. But very rarely do we ever think in terms of what God's need is what God's desire is. 
And to me, that makes all the difference in the world. Because if we're coming here, and what we're talking about is an encounter with God, and we've got to plead with Him, beg Him, we've got to do just the right things and say just the right words and do just the right thing, because He just really doesn't want to do this until He finally gets cornered in and says, all right, I've got to show myself then we're going to have one attitude towards it. But if we understand that when you walked in the door, God was waiting. When you walked in the door, God was waiting. When you got up this morning, God was waiting by your bed. He was waiting in you for you to wake up. I'll never forget years ago when um, our family, you know what I'm thinking of, don't you? When our family... We had a family vacation in, in, in Orlando, and we'd rented a house together as a family. And my, our granddaughter, I brought her up here a few weeks ago, Emma. She's now 10. Uh, and she was probably, what, seven, six or seven? Maybe not even that age. I mean, her, her, her grandma was her life. You know, and they, before she went to school, she would take her out every Thursday, every Tuesday and just spend the day with her. And they would just have wonderful time together, you know. So now we're on vacation, and now Emma doesn't just have to see her grandmother on Tuesday, she's in the same house with her. Emma was up early. <clears throat> Earlier than her grandma. And so I'd come out for some coffee, and Emma's just waiting at the door and seeing and I was up. She says, can I go get grandma up? And I, and I, I said, oh, of course. You're, you're the one person she would never mind waking her up. <laughs> Believe me. <clears throat> and so she went in, tiptoed in, and she just stood there. Well, Anita's turned on her side, sleeping like this, and she just stared at her grandma, waiting for her grandma to wake up. Isn't that cute? (laughs) Do you know God does that with you every morning? Do you understand that when God's waiting for you to wake up so that he can have your attention and begin to commune with you, See, see that's a, our thinking is, is, is from religious training and experiences we have with parents and other people is, is just the opposite. We've got to wake up. I don't feel God's presence, so I don't even know if I feel like praying this morning because it's just not going to work or whatever you're you know, going through. No, God's waiting there, waiting for you to open your eyes, just like she looked down. And when her eyes opened, she got so excited. And Nina was so excited to see her, you know. It's like, and God's waiting for you every moment, every morning. That's why his mercies are new every morning. He's got a container of new mercy by the edge of your bed waiting for you to open your eyes to bring that mercy because his, his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. He loves you so much. He can't wait to be with you. And how little time and attention do we give him? In the same way, when we come in here Sunday morning, Wednesday nights, whenever we come in here, he's waiting. He's been waiting. Now, he doesn't have a watch, I'm sure, but, you know, he's been waiting for the moment when those doors would open and we would come in here. He was waiting for the moment when we would stop talking to one another and begin to focus on him. He's waiting for the moment when the music begins because it's the music that often calls us to him. He's waiting for that. We very seldom think of it from God's side. So we're going to spend some time doing that this morning and probably go into next week or so to begin to look at from God's side. And the Bible tells us what this is like. Sometimes you know, you know, I could tell from, from Emma 
the way she felt towards her grandmother, not just by what she said, by the fact that she was at the door waiting for me to open it, to come in. You could tell where somebody's heart is by their actions. And we're going to look at some of the things God has done with towards man and with man. And from that, we're going to begin to infer out of that where God's heart is towards you and towards me. So in order to do this, let's go way back to the beginning. It's not hard to find. It's Genesis chapter 1. If anybody needs any trouble with that. <laughs> Genesis chapter 1. We're looking at all this story, which you know so well, but we're looking at it from God's perspective. I mean, Genesis chapter 1, story of creation. God creates the universe, the heavens and the earth. He creates the earth and He separates the dry land from the, from the, from the waters. He puts the stars in the sky. He creates all of this majestic universe that we see and marvel at, and our scientists still marvel at, and they're still trying to figure out with all their computers and brains and education and knowledge, they're still trying to discover the true meaning of the universe. Well, it's right here in Genesis chapter 1. He does all that, and then let's go over to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. If you go through all the rest of creation, that's the only thing God said He created that He made in His image. He didn't make the birds in His image. He didn't make the fish in His image. He didn't make the grass in His image. He didn't make nature in His image. And yet we have a culture right now that wants to worship nature as if nature's a god. A culture that puts nature at the same level, if not above, man a culture that establishes laws to protect the survival of one-eyed newts <laughs> and yet legalizes the sacrifice of human beings in the mother's womb. Something's upside down. And what's upside down is we're gradually as a society being conditioned to think that nature is of the same value as man. That's not how God created it. God didn't create the one-eyed newt in His image. And I got nothing against one-eyed newts. They're fine, as long as they stay where one-eyed newts are supposed to stay. <laughs> I don't even know if there is such a thing. But God, God, now understand this, God didn't have to create anything. He wasn't under some obligation. There's no hold that this man and this woman, first man and woman, had on him. They had no hold. They had no requirement that they could say of God, look, you need to create us. It was God's idea. I mean, that sounds so simple and basic, but it's profound. You were God's idea. You may or may not have been your parents, but you were God's idea. You were God's idea. Ephesians chapter 1 in the several places says, God saw you before the foundation of the world. Psalm 139, you, if you're having a bad day, read Psalm 139 slowly. It talks about how God watched over you being formed in your mother's womb. God watched the cells being brought together. He watched over that. Why? Waiting for you to be born. Through all creation, all eons of time, God waited for the moment you were going to be born. 
And we wonder if we have a, what kind of self-image we have. It's the image you have of God, that God has of you. That's the one that's important. So God created, God said, let us create man in our image. The, the R means Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. According to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over all creeping things that creep on the earth. So we would have dominion. Not be under the dominion, but have dominion. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chapter 2, which is another version of the same creation. I believe chapter 1 is the story of creation in the order, chronological order, in which case God created the earth and then created man and put him in it. Chapter 2, I believe, is the story of creation in the order of importance. It starts with man and then the rest of creation. Verse 7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Think about that a second. The life that was in the plants, the life that was in the fish, the life that was in the animals, came because God said, let there be. And as a consequence of being, they had to become alive. But man, God formed in a different way. He formed his body out of the dust of the earth. The others, the implication is, were simply formed because he said it. But God formed his body out of the dust of the earth. And then God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Where did that breath come from? It came from God's own breath. I always get this image. It's like God stood him up. You've got this limp pile of formed flesh, but there's no life in it. And you've got God holding... Now, I'm not saying it happened this way, but this is the picture I got. God's holding him up like this. Mouth to mouth, God goes, God's breath, now that word in Hebrew implies life also, comes out of God and is inbreathed into this pile of dirt. And he became a living, the word means soul. The point here is everything else God made was created by his words. This was formed by God to his design and became alive with God's own breath. Now remember, this is God's idea. This wasn't the pile of dirt's idea. This was God's idea. This is what we're looking at from God's perspective. So everything else God makes by just speaking it into existence, this God made differently because he wanted his life in this man, to animate him, to make him alive unto God. Everybody with me so far? All right, now let's see how he treats this man. Verse 8, 
the Lord God planted a garden. He's already created the earth. He's already created vegetation. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, which means the place of delight. And there he put the man who he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made every tree to grow that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. And it is one that skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. And the gold of that land was good. And bdellium and onyx stone were there. So, there, ladies, there's bling there. <laughs> there's jewels. Now, what we're looking at here, remember, is we're looking at what God did and as an indication of God's heart and God's desire. God's created this universe. He's created the world. He's created the things that are in it. And now He's created this man, and He's breathed His own life into him. Now that he's done that, God says, I want a special place for him to live. There's all the rest of that place, but I want a special place. And it's going to be called a place of delight. Some translations say paradise. And he planted special trees in there that were beautiful to look at. Isn't this a glorious time of year in New England? People come up from all the parts of the country to look at New England this time of year because you're looking at the beautiful foliage. That's God's handiwork. For us to enjoy. I doubt that one-eyed newts are enjoying it. The dogs walking up and down the street, they're not going, wow, did you see those trees? They don't enjoy any of that. All they enjoy is what you put in their bowl. (laughs) And a good rub behind the ears. And then they're happy. But man and God is made in His image to enjoy the creation that God has given him for the purpose of enjoying. Do you understand God paints a unique sunset for you every year, every day? We don't always get to see it because of clouds. These trees are for us to enjoy the beauty of them. And we get so busy, kind of grind out a living and going through life, that we miss the beauty of what God's given us to enjoy. He didn't create this for the animal world to enjoy. It's for us to enjoy. And He created this for His man to enjoy. He's made him in His image. He's breathed His life into him. And now He says, I want a special place for them to live. Special place for them to live. And I'm going to water it for them. So the river flows through in water. Later on it says a mist rose every morning and settled down. God had His own sprinkler system. They didn't get out there with a hose or have to carry water out there. God watered it for them. They just had to watch over it. Special place for Him to put them. And boy, when God creates something special, when God decorates your house, when God builds a house for you. So He's put, he's put jewels there. <laughs> Gold, medallium, and onyx stones are there. The second river, Gion, which is one that goes around the land of Cush, which is Egypt. And the name of the third river is Hedelka, one which goes towards the east, towards Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat in it, it is, you shall die. Then the Lord looked at him and says, It's not good for you to be alone. 
Now, it's interesting. I don't want to get off on this, but you don't have any indication that Adam was lonely. You don't have any indication he's come and says, I got nothing to do, nobody to talk to. I mean, I think he was fat, dumb, and happy. I just think, you know, it's as most men are by themselves. Hey, you know, I can do what I want. I can, t- I can watch whatever I want to watch. I can, it's my remote. You know, I can put my coffee cup down where I want to put it down. You know, hey, everything's great. And God said, ah, that's not good for you to be alone. What I want you to see here is God was looking out for what was best for him. Made a place specially for him. Gave him trees and things to enjoy and jewels and things because he knew he was going to make a woman, that's why. And then he says, it's not good for you. Even though you think what you've got is good, I want something better than you think. I've got something better for you. And so God caused a sleep to come on him and pulled out of a side. It's not just a rib, it's a side, half of him, pulled it out. And he woke him up and he went, whoa, man. (laughs) Whoo, that is now bone of my bone. I recognize she's come out of me. So the point here is we're looking at God's heart towards this man. God's created him, made him special. And what makes him especially special is he's breathed his own life in him. Why? So that God can have communion with him. God can share with him. God doesn't share with the animals because his life is not in the animals. He uses them, but he shares with man. There's something in common between that God and that man. It was the same life was in the man that was in God. Have you ever had the experience, and you've heard me say this many times before, once you became a, I remember once I became a Christian, I discovered I was in this large law firm, about 150 employees in Boston. And back then, there were not a lot of Christians. I'm sure there were there, but not in the marketplace that I ever ran into. And I discovered there were some Christians in the law firm. And they weren't lawyers. They were staff people. They were supportive staff people. And the amazing thing is I instantly felt a bond with them that I didn't feel with family members I'd known my whole life. And it was strange because it was, it, was, it was remarkable. It was very clear in me. It's like, wow, there's something we have in common I don't have with my, a lot of my family. And then later I began to understand it. What it was was in that person, in that Christian, I recognized the same spirit was in them that was in me. So we had something in common. When you see in the New Testament it, when it talks about fellowship, it's the word koinonia, which basically means joined together and having something in common together. And what Ephesians tell us, what we have in common is the same spirit, the spirit of unity. The same spirit that's in me is in you. And that's the same spirit that was in Christ. That's why Jesus said, I was, he's been with you, but now he's going to be in you. Well, that's the same thing. God breathed His Spirit into this man, so they now have a common fellowship. They have a bond that binds them together, which is the same life as in both of them. Why would God do that? Why would God, just to show off what He could do? No, He created that man so that He could be able to enjoy him, enjoy a relationship with him. Love, this kind of love, human love doesn't, but this kind of love is only satisfied when there's someone else 
on which to, to express that love and to give that love. It's only satisfied when there's someone that you can bless or take care of or minister to or, or, or give that love to. I remember when I was working in a firm in, in Tulsa and I got talking with the senior partner because I was kind of a curiosity. He couldn't figure me out because and, and, I'd come from a large, sophisticated law firm and I was a Christian and those two things didn't jive in his mind. And so he started asking me some questions. He said, well, if, if the Bible's true, why would God, knowing everything, why would God create man knowing that he was going to violate his, 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 his commandment, which was to eat the, of the tree you shouldn't have eaten of? I said, well, it was really simple. I said, you have a daughter. She works here. Would you rather have her love you because you're going to fire her if she doesn't? Or love you because she chooses to love you. He said, well, I'd much rather have her love me because she chooses to love me. Why? Because it's an expression of her will. I said, well, in order to give her that privilege of doing that, you run the risk she's going to choose not to. This is, we're going to take a little sidetrack here, but it will help some of you. This is why manipulation in relationships is destructive. Because what manipulation is, is I some, how, somehow, either through guilt or, or whatever, I offering things, I put pressure on you so that you'll love me. Yeah. The problem is you never feel secure in that because you know underneath you made them. You never know whether they're loving you because you forced them to or because they chose to. So you have to do it more and more and more to try to satisfy that need and you can never satisfy that need and it becomes destructive. The only way you can have a healthy love relationship is by taking the risk that that person may not give it back. Otherwise, their choice to love you doesn't mean anything unless they have the freedom to not love you back. And that's what God had to do. In order to have... This again shows you what His heart desire was. He desired... He desired that fellowship, that meaningful relationship, that connection, that, that communion together. It's a spirit communion because that was what he breathed out of him. That spirit communion together, which is why we're going to see true worship has to be in the spirit because that's where we're joined to him. But we'll get there later on. God had to be willing to risk knowing what they were going to do, risk that they were going to reject him in order to have the opportunity to receive what he needed and what he desired from them. And that's true with you. That's true with all, all the creation. Christ went to the cross to pay the way so that the entire world could be saved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin. He didn't just take everybody's sins on him. He took sin itself on him. And that sin was judged so that the full price could be paid so that every human being that ever lived could come to the cross, could, come, could be saved. Everybody. It's all paid for for everybody. But only whosoever believeth can receive it. Christ went to the cross and paid the price for people knowing that the majority of them would still reject Him. We're not talking about going and buying a car for people that will reject it. We're not going, you know, going and giving money to people knowing that they're going to spit in your face. We're talking about 
being beaten, humiliated, whipped, spit upon, nails driven in your hands or feet, and hanging on that cross and dying a horrible death for people to give them the opportunity, the opportunity to be able to come and satisfy the desire of his father's heart. That's how far he was willing to go in order to restore what's about to happen in the garden. And of course, you know the story. They break his commandment, which was simply, there's one tree you can't eat of. See, religion tells you you can't eat of any tree except one. <laughs> and a relationship says there's one critical thing you can't do. You can't break the relationship, but you can enjoy what I've given you. And so they disobey him. They're tempted by Satan and they disobey him. Well, let's go into chapter 3 because we're still looking at God's heart, God's desire. And you know the story. <clears throat> the serpent comes in, tempts them. They both eat of the tree. Verse 8. And what they did is, it says, when they ate, their eyes were opened. They saw things that they shouldn't have seen. They saw, the, they saw evil and good. And so they went and hid themselves. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The implication here is this is what God regularly did, that He came down to walk with them. Now, what we're talking about, just so you understand what this is all about again, we're talking about that every time we come in here, we have an opportunity to walk with God, to encounter Him. Just as the woman at the well discovered she had an opportunity to have an encounter with the living God, we do. And here is the man and the woman had this every day. They had this all the time to walk with God and see Him exactly as He is. We come by faith. They could see Him in all His glory because there was nothing to hinder them. There was no sin. They could stand in His presence because they were just as clean and holy as He was. So there was no veil, nothing hiding, no hidden things. They were, that's why it says at the end of chapter 2, they were both naked and, and, and unashamed. They didn't even know they had no clothes on. They were so conscious of God. We've talked about that over and over again before in another series. They were so lost in who He is, but there was no, they could, that's because they could see Him as He is, in all His glory, in all His majesty. He didn't have to be hidden in a cloud he didn't have to come in bolts of lightning and thunders. He was there in all his glory. Moses couldn't see that. He had to hide to be hidden so he couldn't see the front of God's face. But they could. You and I have no idea of what they lost in a moment's time. You and I have no idea what they lost in a moment's time. The only inkling I get is Jesus on the cross. Once the sin was put on him, God had to remove his presence because God's presence couldn't be there with the sin. And Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You and I, I'm sure, have had experiences where you go through some time, you know, why wonder where God is. That's not what Jesus is saying. 
Jesus walked in complete, uninterrupted communion with the Father. To the point that when he was tired, really spiritually tired, he didn't go to bed, he stayed up all night in prayer. How many of us would do that? Why? Because the communion with his Father rejuvenated him. It strengthened him. He walked in a communion with his Father that you and I have as our goal, our aspiration. And so when that presence is taken away, that was, I believe, his greatest agony wasn't the physical pain, the greatest agony, because he could have gone through anything as long as his Father's presence was there with him. But when his father had to remove his presence, he's now dealing with all of that on his own. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I don't believe that even tells the fullness of what changed in a moment's time for Adam and his wife when they sinned. Because their reaction shows you they ran and hid and were afraid. For the first time in their lives, they're afraid. For the first time in their lives, they have to hide Why? Because they're now separated. This union, this connection has been broken by their sin. Not by God, by their sin. And now God comes looking for them. We're talking about God's desire, God's heart. He comes looking for them as He always did, as was His custom. And they hid Himself from His presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? And he says, I, he basically says, I hid. And he says, did you eat of the tree? All right. Now let's go, verse 9. The Lord God called Adam and said to him, where are you? And he said, I told you, who told you you were naked? He said, I was naked, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded that you should not eat? And he starts coming up with excuses. It's the woman you gave me. There are only three of us here. I just know it's not me. And the Lord God speaks to the woman and says, What have you done? What is this you've done? She said, The serpent. It's his fault. He deceived me and I ate. So now he addresses the serpent. Look at verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. She wasn't talking, he wasn't talking about Cain or Abel or Seth, which were her natural sons. He's talking about the seed of the woman. And what God is announcing here is what I created, this fellowship that I desired that I created, has been broken because that man had a free will, which I had to give him. But God's never caught off guard. What God is announcing here is the plan to redeem man back into that fellowship and relationship that he had with that first man and that first woman. And what he says is from the womb of a woman is going to come a seed that's going to break you, going to break the authority. You may bruise his heel, which is the crucifixion, but he's going to break your authority so that what you've stolen today will be restored to me. And all the rest of the Bible from chapter 3, verse 16 on is the story of God's effort and God's desire 
to restore back that fellowship and communion that he had in the beginning. And why did it take so long? Because the fall was that far. Because the moment they fell, they could no longer see him. They could no longer spiritually see the way they could see before. And now God had to begin to work with them in terms that they could see that before he didn't need to do. So we're going to look at a series of, of things that God established. Each one is an effort for God to come and be among his people and to fellowship with them and to commune with them. But he couldn't just come down and do it the way he did it in the beginning because the fall, the separation was so vast. It was so, it was so far that man could not understand or perceive what God was doing. And so God had to train him and help him along the way with various tabernacles or temples or dwelling places by which God could slowly but surely begin to reestablish this communion and to prepare them in the Old Testament for the turning point, which was when he would come and dwell among men in flesh. We'll look at that because John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That's Christ. Verse 14 says, and the Word, the second person of the Godhead, the full expression of God's character, nature, and will, took on flesh and tabernacled, templed, dwelt among man. We're going to look at a series of events which is God's desire to restore that relationship to the point that he could literally be back to where he was at the beginning and it takes all the way to the end to complete that. But we're going to trace it through from the point of this point of view to look at how much God was willing to go through to restore what he desired in the beginning. And that's the God that desires to meet with us every time we come together. That's the God that's when you open your eyes in the morning is standing next to you, waiting for you to, to look into his eyes and say, good morning, Father, good morning, I love you. That's the one that when we come in here just can't wait to show himself strong and do things in our lives, but we come in with a veil over our eyes. We come in thinking we're just going to church. We come in thinking, well, I got things. I got a roast in the oven. I got this stuff to do this week. I got somebody I'm going out with later on. I got all the stuff I got to do. All these things distract us, and they're all natural things, just like the woman coming with a bucket of water to get a bucket of water. We come here and not realize who's waiting for us here and the desire that he has. We don't have to, the music isn't to stir God up. The music, he's already motivated, he's proven it. And we're going to look at how far he's proven he's been willing to go to be here ready, willing, and able. But when we don't see that, we don't respond, because we respond to him. Everything we do is a response to God, to seeing something about him, to seeing what he wants, what he's willing to do. Because if we don't think he's willing, we'll pay back. That's why, they, that's why this couple was hiding. They didn't know what he was going to do now. All right, let's go look at one other thing. We're going to fast forward now. Let's go over to, to Genesis 12.
We're going to see the story now of what God's doing here. This is all part of this plan. What God's going to do now, because everything God does in the Old Testament, ultimately, and in the New, but ultimately in the Old Testament, is to reestablish this connection and to prepare man to receive what God was going to do. We had, man had to be prepared because he couldn't understand it. He couldn't grasp it. So God took him through a series of exercises, uh, built a series of things so that, so that could, God could train him to receive what God wants to do. And that's what God's doing with us. One of the things God did was he, 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 part of his plan was to be a witness to the world of what he's like through a relationship that he would have with a special group of people. Remember the Gospel of John, one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples is, the world's going to know what I'm like by the way you relate to each other. If you love each other the way I've loved you, they're going to get a sense of what I'm like by how you relate to each other. You can experience relationships. You can walk into a house and feel a tension sometimes. Ooh, I don't think I want to stay here. Or you can walk into a house and feel the peace and the joy. You can see somebody and you can just watch how they relate. Ever see a couple, that, you know, they're young couples in love and just they're, they're cooing and whatever it is you do with you know, oh, yeah, yeah. And you just, oh, isn't that cute? You get kind of get drawn into that, don't you? You get drawn. Have you noticed on, on most radio programs now, it's not just one person. You've got a bunch of people talking with each other. Why? You're listening into their relationship. You're drawing on their relationship. So relationships affect us. So what God did is one of the things he wanted to do to communicate what he was like, because the world had no clue. He says, I'm going to form a people that belong to me where I have a special relationship, a covenant relationship. And so out of the acting out of that relationship, they're going to begin, the world's going to begin to see what I'm like by the way this people relates to me. And it's the nation of Israel. God treated them like no other nation. Why? Because it was to be an example of what he was like as a witness to the world of what he was really like. That he was a living God, not a bird or a dog or a goat or some animal that they made into an image to worship, but he was a true and a living God because you can't have a relationship with a goat, an image of a goat. You can't have a relationship with a stone idol. That's why the, Isaiah says in several places, they have eyes but they can't see, they have ears but they can't hear you. They have hands, but they can't reach out and help you. Why? Because they're not alive. But God's saying, I'm alive. So that the nation people would see it. So what God did is he didn't pick religious people. He picked people that were pagans, that worshipped the moon. Because he started from scratch. And he picked a man named Abram living in a place called Chaldea, which is essentially where Iran is right now. And God began to speak to him. Now, the, this people worshipped the moon. The moon never spoke, I don't think. 
And God begins to speak to him. And let's look at chapter 12 and we'll see what he says. Now the Lord God said to Abram, get out of your country from the family of your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. Now there's nothing Abraham's supposed to do. Abram's supposed to do at this point except go out. And I will bless those that bless you and curse those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Go over to chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He says, do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord, what will you give me, seeing that I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And the Lord said, look, you have given me, and he says, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, the one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came and saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body who shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he showed him the heavens, count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said, show so your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and he counted to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldea to give you this land to inherit it. And, Lord, and he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? What's going to happen here is God's, told him in chapter 12, I've chosen you personally, you, Abram, and I'm going to make of you a great nation that's going to affect the world, and out of you, families of the world will be blessed. He's just, just Abram and his wife, Sarai, who's barren at that point. No kids. But God says, this is what I'm going to do. Why? Because God wanted to establish something that there would be no question is what God did because what God wanted to do. Now he approaches Abram again and Abram's, he's making further promises to Abram and Abram says, whoa, 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 whoa. I heard what you said before in chapter 12. I don't see anything yet. And we got a little problem here, God. You're talking about families of the earth being blessed and my wife's barren. And by the way, we're a little old. So what I've done is, and this was a custom in those days, if you had no male child, you could pick a trusted servant and adopt him to be your heir. So that's what he'd done. He had adopted Eliezer because he, he had a plan to bless his family. He had a plan to go on and for a next generation. Abram had come up with a plan. And God says, no, no, what I'm going to do is not because of your plan, it's my plan. That's not going to work. So Abram says, how do I know this? And God takes him out and says, lie down, Abe. Look at the stars. And he gets him lost. Oh, my. Have you ever, ever been someplace like in the desert somewhere where there's no lights around you and it's a clear night and you just go, wow. That's what it was because there was no city lights around. Wow. And he says, you see all those stars? Yeah. He says, that's the number of your descendants. He's expanding his vision. And now Abraham's having a real problem. How can that be? And we don't have the time to go through it. But what's going to happen is he's going to take him through a ritual that Abram understood was the cutting of a covenant. Because it, it was a practice in those days. And the essence of that covenant is everything you went through of these steps was to signify that 
these two families, these two tribes, these two individuals were now the two were now becoming one. Which meant that whoever came against you came against me. It meant whatever I have, you have. All my assets and liabilities are now yours. All your assets and liabilities are now mine. The covenant of marriage is based on that. And God is saying to Abram, here's the proof that I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do. I'm going to enter into a blood covenant with you. God entering into a blood covenant with a man. Why would God do that? Why would God deign to do that? Why would God condescend to do that? Why would God come down and humiliate himself to the point of saying, I'm going to come down and be one union with you and me. All that I have is now yours. Why would he do that? Because he wanted to create a certainty in the mind of this man that he could trust this God to enter into a relationship with him. Because what God wanted to do with him was so unique. God wanted to make a people out of this man and this woman who in their own natural ability could not produce a child. And so God says, I'm going to do it because I want to. Because I want to prove something. And of course, later, we know the story, Abram and Sarah kind of get impatient, so they come up with another scheme. And that bring Hagar, her maid, to him to have relations with him, and she conceives and has a child, and we're still dealing with his offspring. And God, and they bring him, they bring Ishmael, and say, you made a promise, and we helped you. And God says, I'm not going to do it that way. It's only going to be because you believed my promise and I did what I wanted to do. Why? God wanted to establish this was my people. I was forming them for my purposes. They were going to be unlike anybody else because they were people I formed to be joined to me. They were my people. We have time to go through it, but part of this ritual usually involves an exchange of names, as marriage does. And if you go through, you'll see God changed Abram's name to Abraham. And I'm not written out here, but what he basically did is he took the last two letters of God's name in Hebrew, which is Yah, the root of God's name is Yah, A-H, and stuck it in the middle of Abram. So it's Abraham. God gave his name to Abram. But it gets better. Because God, from that point on, took Abraham's name as part of his. Because from that part on, he referred, God refers to himself as, I am the God of Abraham. Now, what is of, O-F? It's a preposition which implies possession, belonging to. This isn't the famous pen. But this is the pen of John. It's the pen that belongs to John. And God was saying, from this point on, I am a God, the God who belongs to Abraham. 
why would God do that? Abraham, if you read the story, was full of all kinds of frailty, mistakes, weaknesses. He laughs at God one of the times when God makes us promise. Then his wife laughs at him. She had the courtesy to hide and laugh, but you can't hide from God. (laughs) Why would God do this? Because it's part of his plan to have a relationship with one of these, with these men that he made, he breathed his life into, to have a relationship with, where he can bless them, provide for them, take care of them, love them, and be loved and adored and worshipped by them. A love relationship that the world couldn't understand, and God's plan was, I'm going to form a people that have that relationship with me, and I'm going to give them a certainty to it, because I'm going to come down and enter into a blood covenant with them. Unheard of. Unheard of. Unheard of. Wow. Tribes and families routinely entered into covenants like this for convenience. Sometimes it was for protection. Sometimes it was because one family or one tribe may control a well and another family may have grazing fields. So they come together because one tribe needed or one family needed the well, the other needed the grazing field. So they come and make an agreement together and pledge themselves. Maybe it was for protection against a common enemy. But God doesn't have any common enemies. God doesn't, God doesn't need the grazing ground or wells. He can speak them into existence. What, is, what's the, what does God need out of this? What does God get out of the humiliation and the, and, and, the, and, the, and the humbling of himself, what does God get out of that? The beginning of the satisfying of the desire of his heart for this communion and this fellowship. But even at this point, there's a distance that's still not the same. We're going to have to pick up here next week. Whew. Father, Please continue to open our eyes. Stories we've heard before and things we know out of the Bible open our eyes to see what they're there for and the true meaning of them, not as theology or even ideas, but as the passion of your heart for us and how far you were willing to go and the desire of your heart to be with us and to have us to yourselves so that we may come and worship you with full confidence and assurance. We may come to pray and to seek you with full confidence and assurance that your ears are open, your heart is open, and your hands are stretched out. Holy Spirit, we ask you, continue to open the eyes of our understanding that we would see the hope of your calling for our life that is in Christ Jesus. For that's something only you can do. You're at work on the inside of us to strengthen us and encourage us. We pray today with the Apostle Paul that you would strengthen us by your spirit in our inner man Christ may dwell in us by faith 
that being rooted and grounded in love, this love we saw today, that we might come to know by experience, together with all the saints, the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that passes understanding, that just as that first man was filled with your breath, we may be filled to all of the fullness with him. And our confidence is not in us, but that you are able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power of that spirit who lives in us. We thank you for that today. In Jesus' name, amen.